Our scripture lesson is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 9, page 1,233 in the Pew Bible, 1,233, John, chapter 9, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 12. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me, while there is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool Siloam, which translated, which is translated, sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Thus far the reading of God's word, we add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, we have been going through the Gospel of John and uh, saw that most of chapters 7 and 8 deal with Jesus at the Feast uh, of Booths in Jerusalem. And uh, there is a dialogue between Jesus and the leaders of the Jews and the people who are there. And uh, during that dialogue, Jesus uh, uh, claimed to... uh, urged the people to come to him for living water. He also proclaimed that he was the light of the world. And he stunned and shocked them by saying, Before Abraham was, I am. Which was the equivalent of saying, I am the God who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. They were furious with that and wanted to kill him, but he uh, was able to simply walk away and pass by them. And as he passed by, uh, the crowd that wanted to stone him, that evidently couldn't see him through some means, he saw this man who had been born blind. And here we see him doing a great miracle. This is the sixth of the Seven great miracles that John records uh, from the uh, time that Jesus began his ministry till his crucifixion. And uh, it's a miracle that shows that not only it's done for verification, that indeed he is who he says he is. He has said, I am the light of the world, and now he gives light to the blind. This passage is uh, deals with serious issue, the problem of suffering, and many times when 
pastors look at this passage, that's all they focus on is the problem of suffering. Why did this man? Why was this man born blind? Uh, uh, who sinned? Was it his? Did he sin, or did his parents sin? And then Jesus answered. But uh, there's much more here than just the problem of suffering. But I will deal with that, and then move on also to see that this is a sign that Jesus is the light of the world. First of all, uh, when Jesus comes to this man born blind, uh, the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They uh, assumed that this was the result of someone's sin. Now, when it says the man was born blind, uh, we should understand that this is a profound and severe case of blindness not a disease that could be uh, cured with medicine, not uh, something that was uh, happened to him at some point in his life where he uh, underwent some change and he still had a little bit of vision left. No, this is a severe case of blindness from birth. Uh, blind is, is part of his identity. It's who he is. It's not just something that happened to him along the path of life. And it meant severe limitations. There were no laws requiring facilities for the handicapped to make his life easier. The only social structure of support for the blind was family. And if the family wasn't wealthy, then the, the, the blind man was reduced to begging. And we read later on in this chapter that indeed he was a beggar. Uh, in short, his life was a life of misery. He was a blind beggar. Now, why would God impose such suffering on an individual? We all wonder the same thing when we hear of sickness or accidents or atrocities of war and uh, victims of terror. Uh, bad things, terrible things keep on happening. There's that unfolding tragedy in Florida, in Miami, Florida, of a building that collapsed. And we all hear that and are just grieved that, that there's so much suffering and and so much pain and so much misery in the world. Well, disciples thought they knew the answer. The disciples thought that this must be the result of this individual's sin or the sin of his parents. Uh, it was common among the Jews to believe that uh, if a child had a birth defect, then either the mother or the father had uh, committed a grievous sin during the pregnancy uh, particularly uh, uh, one example they give is if a mother uh, bowed down to an idol while she was pregnant, then the child within her bowed down to the idol as well, and the child is guilty of idolatry just as the mother is. And so uh, they were uh, of the belief that if a child suffers, it could be because of the sin of the parents as well as the person's own sin. And they uh, they lean toward the sin of the parents, because he was born this way. He didn't, uh, it didn't happen to him after he had lived a while and committed some sins, but he was born this way. Uh, Job's miserable comforters uh, accused Job of sin. That's why he was suffering. And uh, they uh, believe that when we suffer, it's because we've done something bad. Uh, we have to blame somebody, so we uh, blame the person 
who is suffering, they must have done something terrible. Uh, in that uh, Sound of Music movie, you know, the the opposite is expressed in a song. Uh, Somewhere, sometime, I must have done something good because now she's uh, fallen in love with a wonderful man. And uh, good things don't happen unless you do good. And bad things happen because you do bad things. But Jesus uh, has a different idea. He contradicts them. It's true that there would be no suffering or misery in the world uh, apart from sin. But to argue from that general principle to particular situations is not always the right thing to do. The general rule is not the rule in every instance of suffering. It's sometimes true that particular maladies are the direct result of particular sins. We see that in the Bible with regard to leprosy, the leprosy of Miriam, the leprosy of Gehazi, the leprosy of King Uzziah. Each one uh, committed a sin and were immediately afflicted with leprosy. And so their, their sickness was the direct result of sin. But it was not the case with Job. The book of Job opens with God himself declaring that Job is blameless, that Job is a righteous man. And uh, he's not suffering for his sin. The same was true with Paul's thorn in the flesh. It uh, was not given to him because of something that had happened to him, but to uh, to sanctify him further. Uh, You could go to Romans 5 or to Hebrews 12 or 1 Peter 1 or James 1. All speak of uh, suffering as an act of uh, God, a loving God, working for our good, not as a punishment for sin. Jesus offers a different explanation. He says, this is for the work of God, that the work of God might be displayed in his life. God planned for this man to be healed by Jesus so that Jesus could demonstrate that he was the light of the world. Now, some cynic might uh, say at this point that God made this man suffer for so many years just so God could get glory through him. How how mean-spirited of God to afflict such suffering on this man just so God can be glorified or Christ could be glorified through him. But uh, such uh, cynicism assumes that, that God owes us all a happy life. And when he doesn't give us a happy life, he is denying us our rights. No, the Bible tells us that what God owes us is hell. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We all deserve death. We all deserve abandonment in hell for all eternity. What the man deserved was just that, hell for his sins. But God spared him hell and uh, instead imposed blindness to show him his weakness and his helplessness and his need for a Savior. Then at the right time, God sent the Savior to him. If when the Savior came to him, he had been strong and well, wealthy and self-sufficient, enjoying success in business and social relationships, admired and respected in the community, would he have looked for a Savior? No, he would not. But But like the rest of us, he still would have needed one. God does not owe us a happy life. He owes us punishment for our sins, but instead he gives us pain and suffering to alert us to the consequences of sin and show us our need for a Savior. 
Jesus in another place commented on why bad things happen. Luke 13, 1 to 5, it says there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. When bad things happen, we need to remember that we live in a broken world, that we are all broken people, that we all need a Savior, and we all need to repent of our sins. We should never feel sorry for ourselves because we have to suffer. But at the same time, we must not be eaten up with guilt because God does not punish Christians for their sin. Christ bore the punishment for our sins so that we might be forgiven. But who is the Savior? That's really what this passage is all about. Who is it that helps us? Who is it that gives light to the blind? Before uh, performing this miracle, Jesus uh, speaks some introductory words he says in verse 3, uh, uh, not only does he say, neither this man sinned nor his parents, but that the work of God might reveal, be revealed in him. And he goes on to say, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He says that we must do the work of him who sent me. He includes his disciples there. There is an appointed time for work. It's called the day. And uh, after the day comes the night when no work can be done. The day is when Christ is among us, when his light is shining. The darkness uh, of death, the darkness comes temporarily in his death and in uh, the time leading up to Pentecost. But after Jesus returns by means of the Spirit and makes the church uh, filled with the Spirit of Christ, then the church becomes the light of the world. And even now, it is the day uh, when the light of Jesus is shining. When Jesus was on this earth, it was important for him to let his light shine so that those people sitting in darkness might see the great light and might come to their senses and put their faith in Jesus. And now, as the light shines through the church, through the Spirit-filled church, it is important that we too see Jesus and see our need for him. There's an urgency that the, the light must shine because there's coming a night when the work can't be done anymore. Uh, we, there's a time called uh, now or a day or today wherein uh, we must do the work that God has given us to do. And then he begins to do that work. Having affirmed that he is the light of the world in the previous chapter, he then proceeds to demonstrate that he is the light of the world. And he does that by healing this man, and he heals him in a rather strange way. He spits on the ground, and with the saliva he makes some mud or clay and anoints the man's eyes. Now, that's kind of gross, uh, you know. First of all, putting dirt on somebody's eyes is bad enough, but dirt mixed with spit? Uh, if somebody were to spit on you, you would be highly offended, and the first thing you would want to do is, is find some water to wash that off, because that's disgusting. 
But that's what Jesus does here. Now, why does he do that? Why does he make this uh, uh, ointment out of his own saliva? Well, he does it because he is overthrowing all the rules of uncleanness. Uh, You know, there were several things in the Old Testament that if you came in contact with, they made you unclean. And in every instance where Jesus comes in contact with those things, uh, the reverse happens. Uh, the, the unclean thing becomes clean. For example, uh, Jesus touched a leper. Well, if you, in, according to the law of Moses, if you touch a leper, you, you become unclean. And uh, the leper had to warn you and shout, unclean, unclean, don't come near me, because if you come near me, my uncleanness may spread to you. But Jesus touched the leper. And uh, the leper was healed. Jesus didn't become unclean. The leper became clean. The same with the dead. If you were to touch the dead, according to the law of Moses, you became unclean. And uh, you had to be washed on the, the third day and the seventh day in order to overcome the pollution of death. Point the third day, reporting, uh, pointing to Christ's resurrection on the third day and the seventh day, pointing to our resurrection on the last day. Uh, that Old Testament ceremony is about uh, overcoming the effects of death. We overcome the effects of death on the third day and the last day. And uh, uh, an issue of blood would make a person unclean. And if you touched a person with an issue of blood, uh, you became unclean. But uh, when a woman touched Jesus, who was bleeding, Jesus didn't become unclean. This uh, woman became clean. She became whole and well again. Well, in Leviticus 15, verse 8, it says that uh, if someone spits on you, you become unclean. And uh, Jesus doesn't spit directly on his name, this man, but he applies his saliva to this man. And uh, instead of that man becoming unclean, he becomes whole and well again. Jesus is the light of the world, and light is synonymous with life, and everything about him is healing and life-giving and overcomes the pollution of sin and the pollution of death. He is the one who makes us well again. He is the cure for all of life's ills. Uh, The... uh, the fact that he's told to uh, go to wash in the pool of Siloam also has significance here. Uh, John tells us that the word Siloam uh, means sent. Uh, Jesus had just used that word in uh, a previous work uh, sentence where he said that uh, in verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me. Jesus is the sent one. And he sends this man to wash in a pool called Sent. The pool of Siloam was a pool in Jerusalem that was created by an aqueduct, that uh, an underground water passage that Hezekiah had dug in order to bring water from the, uh, the Kidron Valley Uh, into the city so that the city would have water if the city were under siege. And indeed, when the city was under siege, they uh, got fresh water every day through that tunnel that uh, Hezekiah had built 
it, it saved them. It was uh, uh, a gift from God. They, Hezekiah had dug the tunnel, but uh, uh, the people understood that this was God's way of saving them in the siege. Uh, when Sennacherib came and besieged the city and they had no way of getting water into the city otherwise except by this hidden underground tunnel. And uh, that uh, tunnel fed the pool of Siloam. So this was water sent by God and was water which the people knew had saved them in the past. And it was also where they went during the Feast of Booths. In chapter 7, we uh, described to you the water ceremony that they did every day during the Feast of Booths where they would go to the pool of Siloam and uh, take a pitcher of water uh, and uh, then bring it back to the temple compound and pour it out before the Lord. And when they did that, Jesus cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. You know, he's the water of life. And now Jesus sends uh, this blind man to the scent pool, the the water that had saved the people, uh, water that had been sent by God, to show that indeed this man is healed by the one sent by God. His salvation is from God. Jesus is God. Uh, Jesus connects himself and his work with Hezekiah's work, which was God's work. Uh, It's all God doing, uh, saving this man. Jesus is the sent one, and uh, it is uh, through the sent work of God that this man is healed. This granting of sight to the blind man represents spiritual illumination, the need to see the true light of God's grace in the face of Jesus Christ. To receive spiritual illumination, we too need to be washed uh, and uh, uh, with scent waters. We need the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which is poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Christ, by his Spirit, opens our eyes to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, this miracle not only attests to the fact that the teaching of Jesus is from God and that Jesus is from God and that he brings the salvation of God, it shows us that uh, Jesus is the one who takes away spiritual blindness and brings us the light of life. It's by the power and his power alone that, that this man was healed. But note that the, mo- the man did not receive his sight until he obeyed Jesus. Jesus told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, I, I'm not sure if this man knew that Jesus had applied saliva to his face. I kind of suspect that he did. Uh, because people would have told him what Jesus was doing as Jesus was doing it. He wouldn't be able to see it, and so someone would have been narrating, uh, this is Jesus, and uh, oh, look, he just spit on the ground, and now he's making some uh, mud. And, oh, he's putting it on your eyes. Uh, that sounds like a foolish thing to do. And then, Yeah, I want to wash it off. Somebody put mud on my eyes made of saliva. I I want to get out of here as quick as I can and get to the nearest water I can and and wash it off. And I'm sure there was water closer than the pool of Siloam. But the man did what he was told. He obeyed. He trusted Jesus. 
And because he trusted Jesus, he did what Jesus said. And when he trusted Jesus and did what Jesus said, then he received his sight. Sounds foolish, it sounds offensive, but the man humbled himself and obeyed and was healed. And so you and I are also called to humble ourselves and trust Jesus and go to him who was sent and go to that cross where he suffered and died, where his blood was shed. The world thinks the cross is utter foolishness, but we see in it the power of God unto salvation for all who look uh, and believe. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word of truth. We thank you for Jesus, who is the light of the world, and we thank you that in his light we too can see. We pray that you would wash away our uh, sin and guilt and cleanse us and make us whole and well. Enable us, O Father, to see that what we need and what the world needs is uh, a Savior from sin who will uh, deliver us from the wrath to come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.